Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I wanted to um, continue a bit from this afternoon and um, continue to uh, the ninth theme out of the ten wholesome states that uh, I find important to keep in mind and to connect with and appreciate and enjoy uh, when we are experiencing them. And this is uh, the state of compassion, what I call uh, the, the natural expression of a joyful heart. This afternoon we were working with connection with with those around us and near and far and open to all beings. And um, that connection, that loving kindness, um, when it faces happiness, it becomes mudita. The appreciative joy in the, in the happiness of others. And when it faces suffering, it becomes compassion. That's what happens to us. We're wired up for this. We are, um, we are not only social animals, we are um, resonant animals. And we're knowing now that it, our brains are wired up for compassion. There's, there's what are called mirror neurons in our, in our brains that when you stub your toe, somebody else and you and or when you see somebody else stub their toe and you go ouch uh it's lighting up in that place in the brain that it would go ouch if it were you stubbing your toe isn't that interesting <clears throat> and uh we experience this continuously that's why you know when you See a, go to the movies and see your action movie if you're into action movies. Um, I try to stay away mostly, not all. <clears throat> Hunger Games was good. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I have my, you know, my moments. Um, but there you are rooting for your, for your hero and go, oh no, no, yeah. Ah, yes, oh thank goodness. And um, that's because we, we can feel that. We can resonate so, so much with, uh, with others around us. <clears throat> We're wired up for compassion. This is the Dalai Lama who says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Because it's, it's just so, um, so beautiful how we are wired up where we see someone else suffer and there's a natural expression of caring and connection. 
<clears throat> and as we've gone through the, the different divine abodes and you, the names on the buildings, you can see them. There's Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. Uh, they're called the divine abodes or sublime states. And compassion is a sublime state. However, it's, it's usually defined, or one definition is, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And I always find it interesting that this sublime state requires suffering to get activated. It's not like suffering is sublime, but what it evokes, what it activates us in us is this caring heart. It didn't have to be that way. You ever think about that? We didn't have to be wired up that way. We could have just been, you know, like amoeba, just kind of going our own way. But we are very social animals and are affected by everyone uh, and everything around us. <clears throat> and it feels really good to express your caring. As um, Martin Seligman, I remember I, I read about him, uh, the, that fellow who uh, started the positive psychology movement. Um, he found, and oh, Jane had mentioned about writing the letters uh, to, to somebody out of gratitude. He found that of all the different exercises and practices that cultivated authentic happiness, this is, that was the name of his seminal book, Authentic Happiness, the, the most uh, fundamental source of authentic happiness, what it really comes down to is finding your own gifts, finding your own strengths, and sharing them with the world in a spirit of contribution. In, um, in the, uh, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shanti Deva's Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is uh, the Dalai Lama's Bible, forgive me if this, I've, I've said this before, but one of the lines that I love is, um, when we awaken, it lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. Above poverty from what, what's in it for me into the wealth of giving to life. And particularly when we can express our caring and express our, um, our connection and express our gifts. Mm -hmm. the compassion has a number of different elements. Um, on a more personal level, I just want to continue as I, uh, as I think about it from what we were doing this, uh, this afternoon around um, uh, connection with others and uh, we didn't get to forgiveness. And so I wanted to do a little bit about forgiveness, particularly with those closest to us, because uh, it was just one missing piece that I wanted to do. 
Uh, and that really is um, um, really sourced on an understanding, a compassionate understanding, if possible, what would make someone do what they do that's either mean-spirited or unconscious or, con- or confused. Basically, it comes down to some kind of not seeing clearly in some way. And when we can see, just imagine the confusion in that other person's mind, there's the beginning, a little bit of the possibility of having some compassion for the confusion. In forgiveness, you don't want to um, say, oh, that was okay. You don't necessarily, you're not forgiving the action or what happened, but possibly the heart can open up and forgive the confusion in the mind that would be hurtful. As I said the other day, Jesus is teaching, forgive them, they know not what they do. And the same is true for us when we get confused and we do unskillful things to have compassion for our own confusion. And so we can grow and, and heal. So I wanted to do just a little bit of forgiveness practice uh, with you and then we'll open up to the bigger um, dimension of compassion. <clears throat> So um, find a reasonable, uh, comfortable seat. And partly I'd like to do some first uh, asking forgiveness and then extending. So um, as you go inside, perhaps there's some way that you've caused suffering or been an agent of that for someone else. Maybe you were stressed or activated in some way and you did something that was not very conscious that later on you recalled or you regretted. So just as you think back and get in touch with your state of mind, what would make you do something that you later regret? And, you know, we touched on this a little bit when we did integrity, but we're going to do it with one other piece around forgiveness. And that is... um, as you understand where you were coming from and the confusion behind it, for a moment, feel the remorse, what's called wise remorse, not guilt, but just with a compassionate understanding towards yourself. And as you feel that remorse, Just imagine whoever it was on the receiving end is there in front of you 
and sincerely apologizing. I'm so sorry. I truly am sorry. And I hope in time you might be able to forgive me. Don't expect it right now. The, the vulnerability opens us and touches another heart. I am truly sorry. And as we did a few couple of days ago, have a commitment to do it differently in the future. And imagine whoever is on the receiving end really feeling your sincerity. I hope in time you can forgive me. And having it as a commitment to do things differently in the future so it's not a wasted event. And now take a breath and we'll do a few moments of extending forgiveness. Perhaps there's someone who has hurt you, offended you, that you might be ready to open your heart to. Don't do it if you're not ready and if there's still trauma to be processed. Because it's important in, in your own time to process the hurt and the whatever trauma. But if you would like to be able to forgive because it hurts you, just imagine they're here in front of you. And for a moment, imagine the confusion, the state of mind in whoever it was that caused you suffering. And just as you would hope that someone else could understand your confusion. If you can put on your perspective helmet and understand that other being's reality, this is where forgiveness is based in compassionate understanding. And from that place, let them know, I understand, or I'm trying to understand 
your confusion. I forgive your confusion. I open my heart. Doesn't mean you need to be around them. You might need a safe distance from them. Doesn't mean you have to be their good friend. But just to open your heart as much as is available and extend forgiveness. I forgive your confusion. This is Kuan Yin in you doing the noticing or the Buddha or Jesus. This is where compassion really comes into play. And if you're not quite ready to forgive, but you wish you could forgive, if you're not quite there and you wish you were there, tune into the fact that you wish you could. Because that's a start. It's okay to be just where you are, just getting in touch with the wholesomeness of that intention. And in time, maybe you'll get there. No hurry, no forcing. Just realize that there's a healing possible for within you. And if you're not quite there, also just forgive yourself for being right where you are. And allow whatever your experience was for that to be the way it is. Mm. And it might be a, a process that over time, as you incline in that direction, little by little, you can, uh, you can start to free that tightness. Um, it's amazing how we can carry around somebody's image of something that happened many years ago and it's like taking a picture and freeze framing somebody in a particular moment. Imagine if somebody took a picture of you in your most humbling moment as you're losing it with your kids or something like that and they go, <laughs> ooh, what an unpleasant person, right? And then they put it in their pocket, and every time they take out that picture, yep, really unpleasant, you know. That's kind of what we sometimes do. Something happened five years ago, ten years ago, you know. Yeah, that rotten SOB, you know. <laughs> and every time you look at that picture, you get activated. They might be on a beach in Hawaii having a great time, but you pull out that picture, yeah. So it's really not understanding how people go through highs and lows and grow and wake up and change. 
as you probably have seen in your own life. So really forgiveness is understanding how people and things can change and grow. <coughs> so compassion, okay, the sublime state of compassion. It's about caring and wanna just mention a few words about this capacity to care has to also be balanced with the other divine abode that we've just touched a little bit on, uh, which is equanimity. Equanimity is a kind of spaciousness that says, and this is how it is, that I I think of equanimity in um, uh, the different factors of enlightenment. There's energizing factors of interest or investigation and energy and joy. And then there's stilling factors of um, calm, concentration and equanimity. I think I said this in one of the groups. Calm is a kind of like settled stillness and concentration is a focused stillness. At least that's the way I see it. And equanimity is a kind of spacious stillness, that there's room for everything. Like in Howie's um, big mind meditation today, where the mind is like sky and everything is coming and going within that spaciousness. That points to the equanimous heart that just allows things to come and go and to be as they are. And equanimity is what balances and holds compassion. Because if we get too close and our heart starts to break, we can't really express our caring skillfully. So we need enough space so that we can feel that connection, but not be overwhelmed by it. And I often think of it as a balance between the two where we're we're not so close that we go overwhelmed, get overwhelmed, but not so spacious and distant that we don't feel that connection. And it's an ongoing process of, of finding that balance. As um, it says, uh, T.S. Eliot says in the Four Quartets, he says, teach me to care and not to care. So we have to really know what our limits of taking in the pain around us are because if we're exhausted and depleted, then we can't really express our skillful caring. Mm-hmm. And the equanimity practice um, is a very powerful one. The, the, the formal equanimity practice, the words are, um, You are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not solely on my wishes for you. Which means you have your own life to live. And this is a practice when you're developing compassion, how to hold it with a spaciousness. And I'll share with you a, a story that was really powerful for me in seeing how I could let go of my agenda 
with deep caring on that same retreat that I had that uh, loving kindness um, uh, insight metta for myself. Towards the end of the retreat, I was doing equanimity uh, practice for about a week. And I was saying that, though, that phrase, you are the owner of your karma, your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions and I'm, my wishes for you. And uh, at first it seemed a little cool, detached, but then I kind of got, oh, this is really allowing others to have their own life and their own lessons. And I had this one meditation where I got really excited and enthusiastic about telling everybody in my life the news, you know. <laughs> so it was in this, this meditation in my mind and one person after another came into this, into the seat, you know, starting with Jane. Oh, Jane, you're the owner of your karma, your happiness and that. And I was saying with caring and love, but just saying, oh yes, it's all about uh, how you live your life that you can create um, your relationship to experience and train your heart and your mind. And that was great. And then other friends would come in one after another and I'd tell them the good news. And at some point, my son Adam <laughs> popped up into the seat. And he was 10 at the time. And all of a sudden, I had a different kind of feeling. Whoa, hold on a moment. You're the owner of your karma. You know, your happiness doesn't depend on, on, on me. And I had what, what I call my clockwork orange sitting. If you ever remember the movie Clockwork Orange where they deprogram, where they pro, reprogram the character, the main character, by showing all these horrific scenes. And one after another, the worst imagining scenes that a parent could think of for a child. Car accident, drug addiction, disease, just one after another. And I'd say, say the, the, the phrases and I'd go, ooh, not that. And then I'd say the phrase again. I'd, ooh, oh. It was one after another. It was amazing. For a good hour, this happened. And each time was, <gasps> and finally by the end of that period, I realized I cannot live his life for him. I cannot protect him from whatever happens to him and the lessons that he needs to learn. And at some point, it just, condensed into, Adam, I honor your life journey. And there was a, just a tremendous relief and weight that, uh, that I let go of seeing, oh, it's not up to me to, uh, to rescue him from his life. He needs to learn what he needs to learn and I am rooting for him full on and cheering him on, but as much as I care, I have to honor his life. So 
I just share that with you if you're somebody who cares a lot, and I know there are a lot of people in this room who really care deeply. It's been beautiful to see all the, the open-heartedness here, that you need to balance that care with some spaciousness and not take away somebody's lessons and disempower them. All we often need to do is just really be present for somebody's pain and caring. Often that's the most empowering thing that we can do. And as I was just saying to somebody today, just imagine you're going through a really hard time and a friend who really cares about you is saying, oh, this is so terrible. This is just tearing me up. How can we fix it? Oh, what can we do? How does that feel? Then you got to take care of them, right? You were better off just being on your own. Now there's two people that are suffering, right? But if somebody feels is there with you and really cares and they just say, oh, I want you to know I'm right here for you and I really care and they're not trying to take away anything. They're just there for you. There's a, a kind of relief that comes from that and a healing that comes from that. And I, I'm remembering there's this anecdote of this, uh, uh, this contest, the most caring person um, and that Leo Biscaglia, an old wise teacher, told and he was the judge for this contest, the most caring. Um, and uh, I didn't tell this, did I? No. And uh, it, so it, the, the winner was a four-year-old boy, right? And the mother was telling the story of, of what happened. Um, and she said, well, my, uh, our neighbor, uh, this man next door was, um, uh, he lost his wife after many, many years. Um, and he was just in deep grief and sobbing and for, for many days and weeks. And one day, uh, the mother and the, the boy were in, in their, uh, on their front yard. And the man, uh, the neighbor across the next house was sitting on uh, on his porch in a rocking chair and, uh, and crying. And at some point, uh, the boy uh, goes over uh, to the neighbor's house and, and sits, uh, sits with him. And after a while, the, the man calms down, just very peaceful. And then the boy comes back home. And the mother, who's telling the story, uh, says, what did you do? What did you say to him? And the boy says, oh, I, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. <laughs> That's often just what we need, just to somebody to be there and, and help us cry. That's very healing. But sometimes we actually need to do something. So I'm not just saying, okay, that's enough to just um, you know, be there and, and send prayers, as they often say after the, the, 
the, the awful shootings, you know, yes, we send our prayers. Sometimes we have to actually do something and take action. And in these times, particularly, more than ever, um, sending prayers isn't enough. And that's where we need to uh, act and compassion requires a lot of courage and a lot of action. So I wanted to um, read to you, uh, lest you think that um, this practice is just a, a passive finding peace within yourself. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, the premier translator of the Pali Canon, all the thick books, the middle-length discourses and the connected discourses, they're all Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. And um, he's, besides being a great scholar, he has become this very um, fierce and courageous activist. He founded Buddhist Global Relief, which has raised lots of money for... Um, for uh, um, against uh, hunger, feeding the poor, and establishing um, schools. This is what he says from an essay called A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. And I'll include the planet is that in that as well. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is a great environmental uh, activist. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. Mm -hmm. So we can't just be passive. We have to really engage, especially these days, as one of our friends Roger Walsh says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. We're in a race between fear and consciousness. And so we are, everyone who cares about growing in consciousness is an important player in that because your own consciousness ignites and awakens that in others. And so it's not enough to say, oh yes, I'm finding peace inside. It's so good. I'm, oh yes, I'm doing awakening joy. God, it feels so nice. Yeah, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. We need your caring. <clears throat> so where to begin? There's so, 
so many places to begin, you know, you can get overwhelmed with where to go, whether it's um, racial injustice or climate change or um, uh, inequity uh, of wealth or so many different places. And the idea is to find where you are drawn to make a difference. As Andrew Harvey, uh, who wrote a a brilliant book called uh, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, um, as he says, follow your heartbreak. Follow where your heart is breaking and do something to express your caring. Not that it's up to you to save the world, that's too big. And not that it's up to you to, um, to burn yourself out. That doesn't help anybody. But come from mm, uh, what Julia Butterfly Hill calls a joyful responsibility. To do it out of caring because if you're frustrated and you're outraged and you're, uh, you're just so um, agitated by, by something, if you're just coming from the anger and the outrage, that will burn you out and it's not very sustainable. But if underneath the outrage and the anger, you get in touch with that place that really cares, that's where the juice lies. That's where you can express it and it becomes very magnetizing. Then people get inspired and care too. So if you can let that compassionate action come from a place of connection and caring, with the anger and the outrage, part of, of course, being human, but go a bit deeper, then that inspires and touches others. So follow your heartbreak, but do something, Julia, as uh, uh, again, she's the one who lived up in the the tree. I mentioned her before, didn't I? Uh, For a couple of years, she, and she's so um, inspiring when she gives gives talks and, you know, she's she's really dynamic. Uh, She's gonna be here for a, we're we're planning a day on climate change in in September that we're just getting together and she's gonna be here for among a lot of other great names. Anyway, what she, uh, what she says, um, she says sometimes at the end of giving a talk, she's, um, uh, people come up to her and say, oh, Julia, you've inspired me so much. And she says, oh, that's so wonderful. Inspired you to do what? <laughs> Finding something that expresses your caring as Angelus Arian, another wisdom teacher who uh, Jane and I have both been inspired by. She said, action absorbs anxiety. Otherwise, we're too agitated and feel despairing. You feel helpless, but if you do something, and even if it's just being around, um, around a loved one and just really being there for them, that might be your way. So you just find something that expresses your 
you're caring, and that's good enough. And also, compassion doesn't give up. It's not like, oh, what is the point? And to know that it's possible for anyone to see the light, to wake up. There's a f- the famous story in the Buddhist teachings of Angulimala, who was a serial killer through some confusion, thought that he could fulfill the task that his teacher gave him by killing a thousand people. And he was at 999 people when the Buddha woke him up and he saw, he broke the spell, the Buddha broke the spell and the Angulimala saw the error of his ways and joined the order and ultimately became fully enlightened. And when he'd go on alms round, people would throw stones at him because they remembered who he was and the Buddha would say, bear it nobly, Brahman, bear it nobly. You're working off your karma. It's never too late to see the light. And I wanted to share with you um, a story that um, I've been very inspired by of a, um, a man named Sean Kyler who turned his life around just to show don't give up. And this is um, Sean Kyler. Uh, you can Google his valedictorian speech um, as he graduated from the Hudson Link for Higher Education and Mercy College. He graduated, he was in jail, and he was in jail for many years. Um, he might still be in jail, but uh, he was mm, he was a gang member when he was uh, younger. And just to also acknowledge that the the deck is stacked against, as we all know, uh, people of color, particularly black men in this country. Here's some statistics. Black men, uh, black people can uh, comprise 13% of the U.S. population and 40% of incarcerated population. Whites comprise 64% of the population and 39% of incarcerated. So, right away, there are causes and conditions that create this um, terrible situation, this inequity. But here's the story of Sean Kyler, who... um, a friend of mine connected with Hudson Link said, hey, check this out. This is a good cause to, uh, to support. And you, if you, can, you can get his YouTube. Uh, it's very inspiring where you hear him. I can't do it justice. But here he is telling his story. And in case you uh, feel, oh, well, you know, some people, they're, they're just, you know, they'll, they'll never change. Don't give up. This is Sean's speech. I'll read some of it. We come here to celebrate achievement over failure, perseverance over hesitancy, better tomorrows over the worst of our yesterdays. We're no longer the people we were when we first took our step on this academic journey. 
we do not perceive or experience the world in the same manner we once did. Our cognitive ability as well as our behavior has undergone a change, a transformation. This transformation is not so much a metamorphosis into someone new, but actually a reconnection to our authentic self. That person who we were before, uh, before our response to life situations detoured us from the socially acceptable path to success. And he, I'll just condense it, he tells this story that he always loved school when he was, when he was young, but he was shy about succeeding in it because of peer pressure. In adolescence, he'd get good grades, but hide them from his friends, lying to them or saying he just got lucky so they, they'd continue to accept him. And then he says, at some point, my faulty thinking turned into my reality and my academic pursuit was left on the side of the road with my new reality, the acceptance of my friends became the most important thing to me. I was blinded by the desire to be accepted and ultimately I became a follower. I had to live with shame for 21 years until life presented me with an opportunity to mend my mother's broken heart and a chance to rectify my misplaced values and misplaced loyalty and my faulty thinking. This college gave me a chance to ask for mercy. One professor asked him, how do you plan to touch the world? And that was a turning point. And he said, my answer is clear now by using this experience to help as many people as I can to taste education's sweet elixir. Another teacher told him, any great change must, must expect opposition because it shakes the foundation of privilege. And he thanked another teacher whose solid toughness provided the discipline he needed not to fall short. And then he says, I fully accept the philosophy that in order to change a person's behavior, you must first change the way that person thinks. And to my fellow graduates, I say, Today signifies the beginning of our duty to use this education to better not only ourselves, but humanity. Our communities need us to help save our younger generation. It's obligatory that we respond. We must never forget that our supporters have extended charity to us. So it is incumbent upon us to extend even more charity to others. We can no longer sit idly by we are now beacons of light that must steer those lost in the dark to the shores of positivity of education. We are now reconnected to our authentic self. It is time to let that person shine, to let that person reach for the stars and touch the world. And then he fi finishes his speech by quoting an essay that became his beacon called Anyway. Um, from uh, by Mother Teresa and he adapted it, uh, his own words. He says, people are often unreasonable, illogical and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you, but be honest anyway.
What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. But we have to build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. We're going to do good anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. We're going to be happy anyway. If you give the world the best you have, it may never be enough but we're going to give the best we can anyway. Because you see in the final analysis, it's between you and yourself or your God. It was never between you and them anyway. So, to see that it's possible for love to change everyone or at least most, most of us. And the more we express our caring heart, the more we awaken that possibility in others. So I want to end with um, something, one last uh, exercise and offering for, for you. <clears throat> and this is... Um, developing our own um, bodhisattva vow. Because the bodhisattva ideal is to use your own awakening as an offering to relieve the suffering of others. And you can, there are formal bodhisattva vows. You know, if you've been around the Dalai Lama, he often offers, offers that. Um, but we can have our own bodhisattva vow. And I, I had mine, I didn't realize it, I don't, I don't think I mentioned this, uh, many years ago in, uh, in Queens College. I had mentioned about the Queens College cafeteria. Okay. I just gave a talk this last week on compassion in my Awakening Joy class. Uh, so I, that was why I was gone a few nights ago. You, you might have missed. So I gave this talk. So... Uh, a number of years ago, in Queens, when I was in Queens College, um, and I was going through a very heavy existential period where um, I just said, what's the point of it all? And uh, every conversation I had, it was like, you're, you're born, you suffer, and then you die. And uh, wh what's the point? And uh, every conversation, my friends after a while just wanted to keep their distance from me uh, because I just didn't see, I was reading a lot of Camus and Sartre and, uh, and existential <laughs> philosophy at that time. And um, one day in the Queens College cafeteria, I looked out at this sea of humanity. It's a, it's a very large, you know, 700 people or so in the cafeteria. And it just occurred to me, all of these people doing what they were doing, some just eating, some laughing, some seeming kind of pensive or having a hard time, whatever. But all of them, everyone just wanted to be happy. And then it occurred to me in one moment, hmm, well, maybe if one could bring a little bit more happiness into the world, that could give some meaning. And that was my own, I didn't know about bodhisattvas, but that was my own vow 
maybe if I can find out and discover how to find happiness, if I brought a little bit more into the world, that would give my life meaning. And I said, I I didn't know how I was going to do it, but when I found the Dharma, I said, this is it. We all can get inspired by some vision that we have that widens our intention. Remember, we started out with intention. This is widening our intention so our own well-being becomes an offering. So I'd like you to go inside. And see your own well-being as something that everyone in your life will benefit from and that as they benefit that ripples out and affects everyone in their life and just get in touch with how good it will feel for your own happiness and caring heart to benefit others, to benefit all beings. Whatever your vision is, however you want to make a difference in this world, You don't have to have it all figured out. But to just see your own journey of awakening, having a very definite effect. And if you can get in touch with that, perhaps you might come up with a few words that will inspire you on your journey Something like, may my own happiness be of benefit to all. Or may I share my love and relieve suffering. Whatever words, you come up with your own words. So you see this whole process in a much bigger context. And if you can connect with that, once again, have that as a vision that you can grow into. Connect with that place inside of you that really cares and has something to offer through your caring. And let it be a source of joy, inspiration. And stay connected with it and to it.
And I'll just close with this little passage from Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche, who says, we are not practicing for ourselves alone, since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you very much for your attention. Yeah, well. Oh yes, thank you. Well, turn this this way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.